Marco to First Move. Wonderful to be with you as always. And after a truly unprecedented week on financial markets, at least for a few years, TGIF. Friday, a good time to assess where we stand on those financial stability risks after a week of frenzied news flow. Let me just recap. In just one week, we saw the failure of three US banks, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature and Silvergate. Then the Swiss Central Bank gave Credit Suisse the gift of uh, what I call time in the form of a $54 billion size loan. It remains a troubled bank basket case in my mind. And then late in the session Thursday, 11 of the biggest US banks deposit dumped a whopping $30 billion into struggling regional bank First Republic. Now, the plan was simple, elegant and creative in my mind. The proxy, if you remember, for weakness in these regional banks for days has been their high holdings of uninsured deposits. So we're talking sums over $250,000. And the fear is that deposits will simply or depositors will simply feel safer moving that cash to bigger banks. And we've seen that that's what's been happening. So now what you've got is the mega banks effectively taking that new money and handing it back, thereby allowing those stressed banks to more easily meet depositors' demands without some form of cash crunch. Now, I've still got plenty of questions like how long that lasts, what it means for shareholders in some of those smaller banks, but it seems like a tidy interim solution and it did help stabilise sentiment somewhat. But now take a look at this. Markets still extremely cautious. No St. Patrick's Day green for U.S. futures or for European stocks. And banks at the centre of this week's storm, not yet in the clover. Just take a look at that. Credit Suisse down over 7%. J.P. Morgan analysts said yesterday that they still believe ultimately bigger bank and rival UBS will have to step in at some point. And for the U.S. regional banks, First Republic, they're also weaker pre-market concerns in the latter, and you can see that on the left of your screen, of a dividend suspension, a key, not to mention, of course, how all this volatility and the deposit outflows will hit earnings in the future. And you know what? I haven't even mentioned it's the Federal Reserve meeting next week. The good news is Christine Romans is still standing joins us now. At least she's sitting um, at this point. You know, uh, our colleague Wolf Blitzer said to me um, late Thursday night, Julia, is that the whack-a-mole here going to continue? And I thought actually that was quite a good analogy. There's yeah. been plenty of, of whack-a-mole and, and you can tell me what your answer is. But I said perhaps and perhaps this brings some stability. What do you I think? Say- what a year this week has been, right? I mean, <laughs> unbelievable the amount of developments um, on the financial front and on the banking front here. And I think the whole point of the Fed rescue, the FDIC backstop of depositors at Signature Bank and SVP, uh, and of this really amazing, you're right, creative bank-led bank bailout or bank uh, booster of one of its competitors has been um, remarkable here. And what they're trying to do is put a floor under this conversation. You know, put the fire out. There are still embers. There are no question. There are still embers that are smoking. Um, But put the fire out and project reassurance. And I think that's what this week has been. We've gone from, honestly, panic a week ago Thursday, um, spread through the weekend, all kinds of um, negotiations and trying to understand what systemic risk issues there are. And then this week, it's just pr- trying to draw a line under this this whole event and um, project to the public that, um, you know, the banking system is safe, that with higher interest rates, of course, there will be 
places of weakness. I think the weakness you're seeing in some of the pre-market trading of these banks is uh, regional banks is not existential. It's earnings-wise. You're absolutely right. They'll be suspending dividends. There will be pressure on their earnings, no question, because they will, right, if you want to attract if you want to attract these deposits that are moving around, you know, you're going to have to have higher interest rates on those on those savings. So all of these things are a, a big brew here that we're still coming to terms with. I, I preferred the term that you used, booster, rather than bailout. And we yeah. we had it on the screen now. And I'm like, <clears throat> I still feel that sort of tension over that word. It's sort of a help me to help you situation because this level of volatility doesn't help any bank. I don't care what size you are. Um, The nervousness that I I understand from these big depositors because they don't have this explicit protection when the sum is above $250,000. I'm putting you on the spot here, but do you think think we can get away with not having some kind of explicit guarantee from, from Congress on this? Because I understand those that are saying, look, you keep telling telling me it's safe, and, and I probably am, but I just feel safer being in a bigger bank. Yeah, I think it's so fascinating, and I've heard more and more people, and there are lots of people who for years have been saying that the FDIC insurance levels should change. But you know what, Julia, is interesting? I mean, in Canada, what is it, 76,000? And in the, I want to say in Europe and the UK, it's more like 100,000, you know, it's 100,000 euros. I mean, I have to check these numbers. But the rest of the world, their guarantee levels are much lower than ours. Mm. So I think it's interesting about the playing field. Um, if you have U.S. banks that are guaranteeing to the, I mean, I think it's going to be um, the next logical conversation to have. I also think you've got two federal probes of what happened at SVB and what happened at Signature Bank, and then you've got the Fed looking into regulatory. I think you're going to there's going to be pressure about clawing back compensation, examining stock sales before this happened. So there's a lot. Um, regulatory-wise, I think that we're just at the very beginning stages of in terms of, of, of the health of the banking sector in the U.S. Yeah, £85,000, by the way, in the U.K. Is it £85,000? Um, yeah. Yeah, pounds, yeah. Um, and I completely agree with you. And I understand all the moral hazard issues with that blanket guarantee too, but I just we did it in the financial crisis just a couple of years or one year just to shore up confidence firmly. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I wonder whether we get there. Um, very quickly, Christine because I can't get told off at the beginning of the show. I always get told off at the end. Um, Fed next week, what do you think? So if I, I mean, if, if I were a betting woman, which I'm not, because honestly, I've been surprised better. so many times. But 25 <laughs> basis points. I think 25 yeah, basis points. I'm with you. I really do. You agree? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, yes. There we go. Unfortunately, <laughs> but yes. Christine, have a good weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Get some sleep. Thanks. Thanks. All right, Chinese President Xi Jinping will meet his Russian counterpart in Moscow next week. His three-day state visit to Russia is the first visit since the war in Ukraine began. China will uphold an objective and fair position on Ukraine crisis and play a constructive role in promoting talks for peace. And Will Ripley joins us on this. The Chinese Foreign Ministry, Will, and great to have you with us, determined to present China as a peace broker in this situation, that this trip doesn't alter their uh, impartiality, as they would call it. Um, clearly, the West for, far more cautious about where this relationship leads. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a curious definition of impartiality when uh, President Xi's first overseas trip since this unprecedented third presidential term, uh, which is really signaling what, you know, is going to be top of agenda for him, which is supporting uh, his no limits partnership with 
Russia's president. So you have these two leaders for life, essentially, um, one who's waging a war right now, one who's believed to be seriously contemplating um, a war at some point down the road, uh, or at least some sort of effort to take control of Taiwan. And uh, China has said that they're neutral, and yet uh, President Xi has refused to even get on the phone with President Zelensky of Ukraine. So how can you be a neutral party? Put out a 12-point uh, peace plan that doesn't even call the war an invasion, doesn't condemn Russia's actions, and asks for Ukraine to slice up its, its country that was stolen by Russia. Um, so set aside the claim of impartiality and then the real conversation that the world and certainly the West wants to know is, is Xi and Putin, are they going to come to some sort of an agreement about lethal weapons? The U.S. believes that China has been seriously considering um, resupplying Russia with ammunition, potentially providing other weapons for use on the battlefield. When China is asked about this, they just point the finger back at the United States for doing for doing so and saying that China has not been. But they're certainly helping prop up Russia's economy to minimize the impact of sanctions. I was chatting with, uh, you know, some kind of just regular Russian citizens who actually are here in Taiwan saying that the average person in Russia isn't really talking about this war and they're living their life as normal. That's in large part because of China's economic assistance, unlike in Ukraine, where they're living with constant bombardment and you have a whole generation of people, particularly a generation of children who are going to be traumatized for, for many years to come by what is being inflicted upon them. Life goes on for most Russians. Uh, and and yet China is perhaps considering now, according to the United States, uh, giving Russia the, the weapons and tools that it would need that could potentially shift the course of this battle and not in a favorable direction for Ukraine. Yeah, valid points. Will Ripley, thank you so much for that. And as Will was saying, for all those reasons, of course, this meeting will be closely watched by officials in Ukraine and beyond. Ivan Watson joins us now from Kharkiv. Ivan, uh, as Will was saying there, um, they may call it some level of impartiality, but it's clear that the relationship between China and Russia and the relationship between China and Ukraine are very, very different. Absolutely, because, uh, you know, the, the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, has not had conversations with the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, as opposed to, hey, he's about to uh, fly to Moscow next week and, and sit down face to face with his good friend Vladimir Putin, uh, with whom he has this uh, friendship with no limits. That said, there was a rare uh, phone conversation between the Ukrainian foreign minister and his Chinese counterpart uh, on Thursday, uh, where the Ukrainian diplomat uh, highlighted uh, in the readout uh, the uh, principle of territorial integrity, which has very much come under siege from Russia after occupying Ukrainian territory, declaring that it is annexing it. Uh, in its peace plan, China does say that uh, territorial integrity and sovereignty, those are important principles to it, but it has not criticized those moves by Moscow on the battlefield. Uh, so the Ukrainians are watching closely, and as we just heard uh, Will explaining, uh, they don't want to see an injection of weapons going into the Russian military, which it is struggling against, but holding its own at great losses on the battlefield. Uh, we have heard uh, new statements of support coming from some Eastern European allies. Uh, now the Slovakian prime minister coming out with a statement promising to hand over 13 Soviet area MiG-29 fighter jets to Ukraine. That coming on the back of Poland announcing yesterday 
yesterday that uh, it's going to give four of those jets uh, in a matter of days and more sometime in the future. Both of those governments made those announcements prematurely, perhaps, last year and didn't follow through. They will be welcomed if they do, in fact, arrive here in Ukraine, even though the bulk of the fighting and, of course, the dying is taking place on the ground with infantry, uh, with artillery, with both armies expending huge amounts of vehicles and ammunition on a daily basis. We've seen some reports coming from Ukrainian commanders that the tempo of the Russian assaults all along that front line that runs for hundreds and hundreds of kilometers has decreased somewhat. But that is of little consolation, not only to the troops, but remember the civilians who are still living in these frontline areas, still taking casualties on a daily basis, being pounded by long-range artillery and rockets. We've seen that firsthand. And even though uh, the U.S. and NATO countries have delivered billions of dollars worth of uh, assistance and weapons and financial support. We're still seeing in the frontline areas that Ukrainian troops are driving around in civilian vehicles that have been kind of converted for military use. That just gives you a sense of how desperate the Ukrainians are for help in this grinding war. Julia. Yeah, and it's an important reminder too. But the, the, I guess the symbolism and the statement of those jets are um, important also to underscore. Ivan, great to have you with us. Thank you. Ivan Watson there. And now to Paris, where earlier this morning, protesters blocked one of the city's ring roads a day after anger erupted when the government raised the retirement age to 64 without holding a parliamentary vote. You're looking now at some of the dramatic images from last night when more than 300 people were detained. The French Prime Minister says the government was forced to make a last-minute decision to enact the reforms, saying it had done everything it could to get a majority. Sam Kali has the very latest for us from Paris. Sam, great to have you with us. I can understand, I think, the, the anger at how this reform was enacted, but I do keep having to remind myself that this is um, a 64-year-old retirement age and... Um, it's our children that, that pay for this, ultimately. Yeah, I think the Anglo-Saxon world often finds this very difficult to understand, don't they? The idea that people would take to the streets and the violence was spontaneous last night uh, here outside the National Assembly. You can see uh, the uh, police, the riot police are assembled in case it happens again. And that is because... The idea that you raise a retirement age for 62 to 64 is not something that you would normally expect people to take to the barricades for. But take to the barricades they did. There's the remnants here of uh, tear gas canisters, burning tyres, uh, graffiti. Since I've been here in the last couple of hours, has actually been uh, cleaned off that monument in the centre of the Place de la Concorde. But the essence of this, and we're all very used to the very strong tradition for the street protests among the French. But this goes to a very fundamental part of the French way of life, if you like. This is a pension plan that younger people pay into. They pay forward, like all pension plans, but it's largely supported, the government says, by people in work financing people who've stopped work. And they're, they're saying that that is causing a $12.5 billion euro, similar sort of amount of money, in dollars uh, gap in the finances and Macron has been trying to get this reform through since 2019. There is about two-thirds of the population are against it and interestingly both the far left and the far right are also 
against it. That means, though, ironically, that early next week, when there's anticipated to be a, a no-confidence vote in the parliamentary at part of the government of Emmanuel Macron, not the president himself, but his prime minister and ministers, they're likely to win it because ultimately the far left and the far right hate this policy, but not enough for them to make friends, even for the short period it would take to make sure that that vote of no confidence went through. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and to your point as well, previous presidents have tried reforms like this and not ended up expending the political capital to do so. Um, Sam, very quickly, do you think we see more protests or does this quieten down now? No, I think we are anticipating more protests, perhaps more organised protests. Certainly next Thursday, the unions, the public sector unions in particular, are planning a very big set of demonstrations and marches. There is some reporting that the far right might be trying to put something together for tomorrow. For now, I think it's likely we've seen the, not the last, but a, a, a decline in the likelihood of any of these spontaneous demonstrations. That was very much, I think, in response to the idea that you could lose a parliamentary vote or face losing a parliamentary vote and then ram through legislation with his executive fiat, Julia. Yeah, and that makes sense. Sam, thank you for that. Sam Kiley there. OK, coming up here on First Move, bank collapses, cash infusions and market turmoil. March madness indeed. We'll discuss it all with former IMF chief economist Professor Ken Rogoff after the break. And later, an HBO smash hit triggers a surge in bookings. We're heading to Sicily to speak with the real manager of the luxury resort used to film White Lotus. I think we need that this week. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. It's been a week filled with uncertainty for the banking sector, investors and consumers. Last Friday, Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. Over the weekend, the US government stepped in to bail it and Signature Bank out. By midweek, Credit Suisse was in trouble and its stocks tumbled after one of its top shareholders said it would not offer additional assistance and raise its stake. It couldn't. And then it received nearly $54 billion in emergency aid from the Swiss National Bank. And then yesterday, 11 of America's largest banks provided deposits to the tune of $300 billion to First Republic. That is a lot for the Federal Reserve to think about ahead of its upcoming interest rate meeting, not to mention its ongoing fight to tame rising prices. Former IMF chief economist Ken Rogoff has repeatedly warned of financial instability if the central bank continues to raise interest rates. And Professor Ken Rogoff joins me now. He's currently a professor of economics and public policy at Harvard University. So it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I can remember two highly prescient articles that you read, wrote this year alone, actually, the looming financial crisis for Project Syndicate very much sticks in my mind, though you didn't mention Silicon Valley Bank. So I'll deduct a point. Um, in all <laughs> seriousness, how worried are you? Well, I mean, I think the global economy is about to go through the ringer because interest rates have gone up. And there was this euphoria a few weeks ago that maybe nothing's going to happen, but I think we're going to get some kind of global recession. I don't think we're going to get a 2008 style banking crisis for all the reasons that the ECB and the Federal Reserve are saying. 
I don't think they've necessarily stemmed every possible problem, but the situation's better. But on the other hand, uh, you know, we have inflation, which we didn't have. I think we won't have the era of ultra low interest rates anymore. And I could go on the war in Ukraine. It's, it's a difficult global situation to navigate. There was speculation after the European Central Bank move yesterday. And despite some of the turmoil that we'd seen or weakness across European banks, they decided to do what they promised and hike interest rates by half a percentage point. There's obviously now speculation about what the what the Federal Reserve do. But I think um, the belief, at least certainly from the markets, is that perhaps the European Central Bank is now done. And if the Federal Reserve does another quarter of a percentage point, that could be peak rates in the United States. What do you make of that, Professor Rockoff? No, I, I don't agree with that at all. Um, I think inflation's still quite high in both places. What might be true is they might take it slower. Uh, so they may, you know, wait to see how things are shaking out. Uh, but I, I think in, even, even if we have a recession, I'm not sure this time that's going to bring inflation down. People are always thinking of the last war. We're more like the 70s than we really are like 2008, as far as that goes. That leads me on to a different question. So does, for Europe and the United States, they simply have to accept, whether they say it or not, a higher rate of inflation? No one really understands the target of 2% at this stage. Do we just accept that somewhere in the middle, perhaps, of, of where the United States is, significantly lower still for, for Europe, is acceptable? four percent, even if they don't say it? Well, yes and no. I mean, they're going to say we're going to bring it down slowly. I, I think it is hard to get that last bit of inflation out of the system. So getting it down from 10 percent to four percent is way easier because a lot of these transitory temporary things reverse. You didn't have to do anything. But there's an embedded part that's going to be more painful. And I, I frankly think it makes sense to take your time getting it out. But I wouldn't go telling the market, oh, 2%, we swore on a Bible that we would never, ever let it be something else. And we changed our minds. Do you think if the Federal Reserve slows down, perhaps even does a temporary pause, it can avoid U.S. Congress having to come out and say, look, we'll give you at least for a short period of time an explicit guarantee that will backstop those uninsured deposits? Because I think that's the big question now. And it was done during the financial crisis to shore up confidence. Admittedly, that requires Congress to come together and agree on anything, quite frankly. But do you think slowing down these rate hikes will enable the banking sector to be stable enough to avoid that explicit promise? Well, I think the Treasury was behind this, and I don't know to I, what extent the Congress can step in around it. Um, they they did basically cast a net around everything. So, yeah, they only <laughs> did the uninsured deposits. Yeah, they only did the uninsured deposits at the failing banks. But it's kind of clear to everyone that everything's insured. And that's very problematic because, you know, some deposits pay a higher interest rate. Believe it or not, there are bankers that do risky practices, and you want to have some checks and balances on that. It's a concern. But I, I do think they did the right thing. There was just panic going on last weekend, not just in Silicon Valley, but everywhere. And they really had to overshoot or it would have gotten worse. Look what's happening in Europe still after 
the ECB said everything's fine. The Swiss National Bank gave this lifeline, or at least temporary lifeline, to make break up Credit Suisse at the end. Uh, it, there's still a lot of concern. And I think that we're, financial crises tend to come in waves. Mm. And I think we've just seen the first wave. Okay, that's where I was headed next. You weren't so worried about the United States and Europe when you wrote that article. You were looking at the impact of, of rising interest rates on countries that have far greater holdings of sovereign debt. You mentioned um, Japan, China's an interesting, Italy is also an interesting one. And we've sort of been there, done that and, and bought the T-shirt on that one. Um, <laughs> where, where should we be looking? Because it was funny, earlier this week, I was sort of looking at how the Asia session performed and, and sort of just waiting. Differences in inflation and interest rates there, perhaps, which is a, a bonus, but still. Well, I have to check if my T-shirt still fits after COVID. But uh, <laughs> I was surprised at where uh, that it happened where it did. Okay, after it happened, I can tell you why. But no, I wasn't expecting it in two of the richest places in the world, California and Switzerland. Theoretically, very well-regulated well financial sectors. I, wa I am worried about Japan because... You know, here, uh, and I mean the United States, but also uh, Britain, Europe, young people had never seen inflation. They'd never seen interest rates go up. In Japan, you can go many generations and they haven't mm -hmm. seen it, and they're going to. And so it's hard to know how what will happen when that does. The Bank of Japan's trying to hold it off, but I don't think they can indefinitely. And Italy, yeah, I mean, it's actually done fine. It's actually inflated down a lot of its debt. But the glue that holds Europe together, the Eurozone, has been these zero interest rates, and they're gone. And so next time there's a deal, it's going to seem more expensive, more difficult to negotiate. Can central banks and authorities manage whatever comes? Because we proved in the financial crisis that it can get incredibly rocky, but that the situation can be managed by creativity wherever required. It just means we need to um, wear hard hats, perhaps we'll have them ready for longer. Okay, well, they're very good at the central banks. And actually, I think what they did so far uh, on the whole is great. Although, I'm not sure why Silicon Valley Bank happened. They were supposed to be being supervised. I'm not sure why they didn't bail them out sooner. I don't know what was going on. But yes, we have very good central bankers, but they're not the whole picture. I think, as you mentioned about Congress, and I think we can go to other governments, uh, they're paralyzed. And by the way, debt is really high around the world and interest rates are higher. So this whole idea, well, whatever happens, the government will pay for it. Not so simple this time. Uh, we're fighting a different war than we did in 2008. A quick question there, because you've just um, sort of rung an alarm in my head. You, you clearly have questions for the Fed and for the San Francisco Fed. W what was going on? Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I in particular, everyone does. So how can it be that I'm, I'm sure that the San Francisco Fed knew a lot of things about Silicon Valley Bank, probably their carbon footprint, but why didn't they know what was going on with this? It's just surprising. Uh, and then when it unfolded, uh, they weren't technically insolvent right away. So why didn't they uh, 
give them liquidity right away and nip it in the bud. Uh, it's hard to know. These things move so fast and there's so many political pressures, it's, it's hard to know. Again, uh, it hasn't happened everywhere. So, you know, it's so hard to supervise this big banking sector. But this, this was an important bank. It was a uh, very much will be missed. Yeah. Valid points, as always, sir. Great to chat to you. Thank you so much. Former IMF Thank you. economist, Professor Ken Rogoff. We'll speak soon, sir. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running for the final session of the week, thankfully. And it's been an eventful and drama-filled week for investors and the banking sector in particular, drawing to a close. But I think the uh, warning is braced for fresh volatility today. U.S. stocks beginning the session mostly lower. As you can see there, the Dow, the underperformer, as investors assess all that's been done to stabilize the global banking system this week following the collapse of three U.S. banks, the turmoil at Europe's Credit Suisse and the multi-billion dollars in aid extended yesterday to First Republic Bank, not to mention the hike, of course, by the European Central Bank. Still a lot of nervousness in the regional U.S. banking sector, despite the extraordinary moves by major banks to bolster First Republic. As you can see, they're down some 17 percent at the early start of the session. Sizable losses for many of these stocks. Amid all these historic events, the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq are still on track for a winning week. Yes, you heard me, with lower bond yields helping boost interest rate sensitive tech in particular, a relative safe haven, would you believe it? Today, by the way, is a triple which options expiration day, which means we could see even more volatile stock swings in the session. Now, just noting this, one financial asset that has not suffered amidst the most volatility is Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency currently up some just shy of 7%, briefly regaining the 25,000 level. In fact, we're above that, as you can see. Gains more broadly, too, across the crypto space. It goes back to the premise of crypto, which is that you simply don't trust central banks and um, traditional fiat currencies. So clearly a better week for them. Now, updating you on Credit Suisse shares of the Swiss banking giant sharply lower, but off the session lows, a reversal of the relief rally that we saw earlier this week following the Swiss central bank's $54 billion loan package. Today's action reflects concern that more needs to be done. Three letters spring to mind. U-B-S. Anna Stewart joins us now. Anna, you know that there's a problem in a bank, and we've been talking about this now for many, many months. When the, the moment a $54 billion loan is extended by the, the central bank, someone comes out and says, still not going to be enough. And that would just analysts at JP Morgan. Well, we knew yesterday, Julia, that the story didn't end there, did it? Mm. And it really didn't take very long for that relief rally to come to a pretty sudden halt. Uh, looking earlier today, I think the share price is still down around 25% on the week. And that's despite, as you say, a nearly $54 billion loan from the central bank. And you're right, that JP Morgan note was a really interesting one because it underlines the fact that the capital position of Credit Suisse isn't really the problem or the problem at all, um, really, when you consider this bank, particularly aside from all of the other pressures we've seen on the sector so far. What happens next? Because options are on the table now at this stage for Credit Suisse. It has been undergoing this big restructure now for many months. It's had issues now for years. I think it's on its seventh uh, restructure already. So what do they do? 
Option number one, do nothing. I don't think that is an option really that's viable at this stage. Looking at the share price, looking at those outflows we saw, particularly in October of last year, looking at its customer base. So then you get to option number two, just you know, accelerate, revamp the current restructure plan, maybe get rid of that investment bank unit much sooner, speed up that timeline, or you know, this is a big option, but just close it down altogether. The third option is to consider that Credit Suisse, as it stands, doesn't seem to be as valuable as the sum of its parts. Perhaps sell those parts off to different buyers, whether it's wealth management or asset management or retail banking. There are probably buyers for various units, although you do question what you'd be left with. And that leads, as you say, to that third option, which certainly is getting a lot of um, headway in the reports today, which is a complete takeover by UBS. Now, according to Bloomberg reports, neither side are interested in that, but it certainly seems like one of the obvious choices. And then you get to the end of the line, worst case scenario, and I don't think we're there yet, which is where the central bank simply has to take control and make those decisions itself. But we're some way off that. I, for one, Julia, not sure about you, I'm relieved the markets will soon, in a few hours, close and yet another crazy week on banking uh, will be over. Yeah, I, I sort of got a deja vu sensation from UBS itself, what, 15 years ago now. Um, what we've got to remember with Credit Suisse is the domestic Swiss business is very profitable. So the sum of parts point that you made is um, mm. very important. Anna Stewart, good job. Thank you so much. You should also get some sleep this weekend. Thank you. <laughs> okay, coming up after the break, time to pack your bags. Welcome to the White Lotus in Sicily. Oh, take me there, please. A story of intrigue, romance and vespers. But what's it like staying at a real-life White Lotus hotel? The manager of the luxury resort used to film the HBO hit reveals a few of its secrets, we hope. Next. You guys are... Welcome back to First Move, now to a story of sun and sea, infidelity and intrigue among super-rich vacationers tangled in a web of deceit. What's more, if I told you, quote, these gays are trying to murder me, then fans of a certain award-winning HBO series will know exactly what I'm talking about. Whenever I stay at a White Lotus, I always have a memorable time. Always. There can be no forgetting Jennifer Coolidge's role as Tanya, nor the magnificent setting of the island of Sicily, where season two of The White Lotus was filmed. One of the biggest stars of the show was the San Domenico Palace in the town of Torremina, rebranded for TV as The White Lotus, of course. Now, the five-star Four Seasons property has seen a surge in bookings, and its real-life manager says it's a match for its fictional counterpart. And his name is Lorenzo Maraviglia, and he joins us now. Lorenzo, amazing to have you on the show. Um, sort of dangerous in certain cases to call this a match, but what a showcase for your hotel. Although I did read that you're completely sold out this season. What's the truth? Yes, we are. <laughs> wow, we are, are you? First of all, it's a um, it's a pleasure to uh, to get in touch with you and your audience. Thank you for this this opportunity. Yeah, we have we we are. It's um, it starts to be an incredible season. I mean, we 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 saw some some you know some interesting number last years as well. So we were the talk of of the nation from an hospitality point of view. Uh, but obviously, White Lotus you know added added a lot of value to that. 
I mean, you were already an American favourite, I believe, and I think everybody around the world knows the Four Seasons brand too, but who's now coming? Because Netflix is a pretty global showcase. Yeah, actually, it's it's very interesting to see. I, I've been, uh, you know, in, um, matching and seeing, you know, Polish family whole January uh, or Australians family. You could actually see where White Lotus had more impact, you know. But of course, the number one market for us uh, remains the U.S. It had an incredible impact. I, I, I was lucky enough. I know it sounds posh, but... I was lucky enough to be invited at the opening, uh, at the premiere in uh, in Hollywood, you know, back in November or early October, late October, and, and I could really see the impact that you know this series has on on people. You know, the White Lotus has is an incredible show, but had a, you know had a, an incredible grip on, on on the Americans in particular. But again, the Italians, uh, the French. The Polish, as I was saying, the Germans are crazy. Mm. The Australians are crazy. I think it's a it's a global it's a global thing. Now it is quite naughty. I mean, there's murder. There's um, what I'll carefully say on television um, for a young audience too. A, a ladies of the night. There's all sorts of intrigue. How closely does um, art imitate life at these hotels, Lorenzo? Like, how much of this was and is sort of true to form of some of the things that you've seen, or are you banned from speaking about them? <laughs> mm, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, X-rated. There's, there's a big component of 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 drama and spice that you know they add to make it interesting. I, I honestly would say that Armina is far from it. You know, it's a it's a destination. Uh, you know, it's a family destination. It's an extremely romantic destination. So you see a lot of you know, nearly wed or, or, or you know, celebration, and, 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 and etc. So you don't really see much of that night movements, to be honest with you. But, you know, it was, it fitted the, the, the show, and I think they did very well to have that, that level of spiciness. But to be honest with you, I hope I don't disappoint anyone. Tarmina, it's a it's a family destination. It's it's uh, it you know it's it's a pla it's a perfect place for a family reunion. Yes. Okay. So for anyone who's watched, and I should be clear, HBO, not Netflix, the White Lotus series, then it's slightly less spicy, perhaps, is what you're saying, Lorenzo. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. you obviously spent time with the stars. We all know Jennifer Coolidge, and I think a lot of people love her. But um, can you tell us who your favorite star of the show was? Um, well, I think I got extremely close to uh, Sabrina Impacciatore because she, because of the role she was playing and the fact that you know she wanted to uh, to get in touch with me and to spend time with me and shadow me on 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 my day to day life. And she came uh, in many of my meetings. She just sat on the side taking notes, and, and it, it was incredible. I mean, it was not um, a global star yet but she was extremely known in Italy. So for me to have, you know, an actress like that, um, so dedicated to, to her role and, and, you know, wanting to get every single shape of it, it was, was, was incredible. And, you know, we ended up going to the gym together at night and, and, and so we got very close. Um, I just want to, you know, uh, uh, precise that I am not that type of general manager, right? You know, she added also a lot of spices, a lot of rudeness to that. 
I am not that way. So don't <laughs> don't expect me to kick out people from my hotel. That's that's not the way we are. But um, I think more of you know the approach and 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 some of the some of the small daily dynamics. Jennifer Coolidge is a you know it's it's is as you see it on on the screen. She's really like that on anything she says. She's probably one of the most funniest persons I've ever met. I I also <laughs> very close to those that you don't see. Like you know, Mike White, and 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 uh, that that you know is is behind the camera, but it's such an incredible person, very inspirational and fun. I'm I'm glad you changed the subject to her because the spice level of this whole thing was um, was rising briefly there, Lorenzo. I have about thirty seconds left. I know I have two questions, so you have to answer very quickly. Um, if you could have your choice of where series three is set where would you where would you set series three of the white lotus and the second question is were you in it i was trying to see you at some point no 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 were you I actually was, in it i no? I, oh. I was not in it although although i try every card possible in these Exa- work, i was about to, to say honest, walking past yeah now nah, trust me my my ego my ego was, was, was all over it. That moment, i wanted to be actually the main actor but they didn't put me this the second the third one i would i would suggest bangkok because understanding and see how how crazy they are i think that bangkok would be the perfect place i know they wanted to do something in asia and i think they will end somewhere around that part of the world yes bangkok crazy in a good way (laughs) (laughs) great to chat to you have a great summer i think you're going to be busy thank you thank you so much the general manager done (laughs) <laughs> if I can afford it, General Manager of the San Domenico Palace Hotel said, thank you. An alarming threat for tourism in Florida, Mexico and the Caribbean right now. As we speak, a giant blob of potentially dangerous seaweed is floating towards the region from the Atlantic Ocean. The build-up could be the biggest we've ever seen on record. Leila Santiago is on the scene in Key West in Florida. Leila, devastating for the fishing industry too, not just tourism. Right, this is something that could have a big impact. Some folks, the fishermen, actually say that there could be benefits of that. You'll hear about that in just a second. But let me show you exactly what this looks like, right? This is what's washed up here in Key West. And mixed in this is a bit of what they call sargassum. It's uh, it's this seaweed, this particular type of seaweed. Scientists have been, have been tracking it in the tropical Atlantic since 2011. And they say this massive amount, record amount, that they are seeing now could be a new normal it's thick in the summertime builds up and smells terrible joe kaplan captured these images about a week ago massive amounts of seaweed washing up at smathers beach a beach he knows well because he walks it several times a week i was shocked when i saw it that day where it wasn't even spring yet it's still winter which is very unusual and this is about a five thousand mile long Professor Shalman, who is one of the leading experts on what many have referred to as a massive blob of seaweed heading to Florida's coast. Fair to call it a blob? Nope. No, <laughs> no we can't call it a blob. Okay. I, I would never call that a blob. Okay, okay. why? <laughs> because it's not. 
Satellite images, he says, show it's not one massive body of seaweed, rather a bunch of patchy clumps traveling from West Africa. It's called the Atlantic Sargassum Belt and is considered a natural phenomenon. Right now, it's twice the width of the U.S., carrying 6 million tons of seaweed and headed to the East Coast. In June of this year, it may turn into 20 million tons. So let me get this straight. This, what we're seeing the last month, is 6 million tons, and it's going to get bigger. Yes. There's no way to stop that. This is nature. It's just like no one can stop a hurricane. Should we be worried about that? Nope. Why? <laughs> Reason is the sargassum is not toxic. But it smells pretty bad, and it's a nuisance for those trying to keep beaches clean to attract tourists. Just a few years ago, here's what it looked like in Mexico. Officials in Monroe County, which includes the Florida Keys, have set aside more than $200,000 to clean and remove sargassum from its beaches. Seaweed is a mixed blessing. Um, we need it. Seaweed is a uh, nursery for all these large pelagic fish. The negative side to that seaweed is if it comes in the concentrations that uh, are believed we're going to see, um, our fishing grounds are going to be completely covered with it. There's almost no point to fishing because we're going to be spending the entire day cleaning weed off our lines. And as the sargassum belt heads toward Florida, another natural phenomenon is already hitting its beaches on the West Coast, red tide. It can be toxic, kill fish, and cause respiratory issues. This year's red tide concerns were enough to cancel at least one major event here in Indian Rocks, where one family visiting told us... As soon as my son and my husband and I got out of our car, we all started coughing. But for spring breakers like this group from Iowa, the concerns of massive amounts of seaweed or red tide were not enough to change vacation plans. I would rather it be red tide than raining every day. Tourists, noting friends back home. They'd be pretty jealous, regardless of having a little bit of the, the red tide symptoms. They'd be pretty jealous that we're here and they're not. Because the pristine beaches of the Sunshine State are hard to resist for many, despite what may be looming offshore. And the scientists will tell you more research is needed because while they have a pretty good understanding of what it is and sort of how the current moves it around, they still can't forecast it. And that is where they say they need more funding for research. So when I asked the scientists, okay, so if, if we wanted to see less of it, could we find a solution? He cautioned that like anything else in the ecosystem, that could have unintended consequences. So his best recommendation, just try to avoid it if you can. Julia? Leila Santiago, thank you so much for that report. And that just about wraps up the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. Have a great weekend and I'll see you next week. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.